just how did they get it so wrong? This week on Download This Show, the government are looking set to pay back over a billion dollars for their bungled robo-debt scheme, which was originally intended to claw back money from people receiving government payments. The scheme has resulted in huge amounts of heartache and in some cases people even taking their own lives. So how did it all come to this? Also on the show, can Airbnb weather a pandemic and what is the future of travel? And breakups are hard. What happens when one of the world's most valuable computer businesses breaks up with the company that has been making their insides tick for many years? Yes, Apple have had their crucial chips made by Intel for some time now, but now they've released a range of computers where they have made their own Apple chips. And is the result better, worse? How'd they do? Let's find out all of that and a special preview of something brand new that's coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show and a very big welcome from News Corp, Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm not too bad. And he is the host of the excellent podcast Meta and the also excellent podcast The Help Desk. Peter Wells, welcome back. Oh, thank you, Mark. How are you doing? I'm all right. In fact, I'm really great. And I'd like to say an even bigger thank you. No, I'd like to say an even bigger welcome to those of you who are listening to us on Spotify. As you know, uh, for a long time, we've wanted to get more ABC podcasts on Spotify because, frankly... You've paid for the show already through your taxes and we want to meet you where you're already listening. Heaps of Australians are listening on Spotify and as of now, download this show. Amongst other ABC podcasts are available on Spotify and if you happen to be listening to us on that platform, we say welcome. All right, first up on the show, uh, Max, Apple Macintoshes have uh, new insights. Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson. They have, they have. They have new chips um, of the, the non-potato variety and this is very exciting Damn it, I want them to be a potato variety. Look, I think that's potentially a Microsoft thing. Um, no, so <laughs> it's really interesting that Apple has actually, you know, created uh, its own silicon chips for the first time. Um, however, it's it's weird that not that many people actually want to ha- sit down and have a discussion about chip architecture. And so, um, yeah, between those <laughs> those two things uh, lies a conversation that involves a greater battery life and a little bit of a power boost as well. Excellent. Now, Peter, you've actually been playing with some of these new Macs with their new non-potato-based in sides. I do want to get into Mm. chip architecture, but I just want to start off with me as a consumer considering buying Mm -hmm. a laptop. What's different about the experience? What's different is uh, just the amount of battery life you're going to get out of these machines. And it depends what kind of stuff you you generally do on your laptop. But for you specifically, Mark, um, someone who does a lot of video editing, a lot of audio editing, uh, you're going to see some crazy improvements. Like Stuff that, uh, you know, when you, whenever you see those slides and, and on any company and they say that we're, we're talking about three times the, the speed improvements or things like that, you tend to take it with a grain of salt. But here, Jen, I'm sure you saw this, the same kind of performance. This, they're, they're being almost um, a little bit uh, coy about their, their uh, improvements. I, I was seeing crazy performance. Yeah, they were really impressive. Um, and it's, it's definitely noticeable. When you open up these these. these programs, especially the ones that have been optimised for the M1 chip, you'll notice that they open straight away. And I mean, that sounds a bit silly because, you know, 
that that's what a computer normally does. However, I realized just how long I'd been waiting for programs to open. And there's there's extra <laughs> yeah. fractions of a second that I'm gaining every time <laughs> I open some of these these programs. And now I'm I'm wasting all of those seconds that I gained by talking about that. But still <laughs> Can I ask a dumb question? How do different chips make battery use more efficient. I don't understand the relationship between those two things. Yeah, look, I want to say it's black magic because that would be an easier explanation. But <laughs> um, essentially, Apple has produced an ARM-based chip, which are known for really good efficiency. Right. And what they've done is they've they've created a system on a chip, which is similar to what you'd see in your iPhone, um, where all of the little bits and pieces are put on one individual small kind of chip as opposed to a motherboard, and they share resources. And so there's less duplication between different bits talking to other bits, and therefore that's how they save some of the battery life. Um, but what you need to know as an end user is that Apple's quoting something like, out of the MacBook Pro, um, 17 hours of battery life. And that's that's when connected to the internet because why wouldn't you be connected to the internet? Um, and I found that actually bears out. Like I can get mm. this computer, I can I can play with it, I can read all of my emails, get really angry at the world and still be on 98% battery life. Peter, just before I get like verbaled on Twitter about being an Apple fanboy, how does this compare to other products that are already out on the market? Is it particularly noticeably better or worse than anything else out there? What is really remarkable here is that Apple have been kind of beta testing these chips in plain sight for years now. You know, these are the chips that have been in the iPad Pros that for me were incredible to play with, but then you'd say, well, yeah, but it's still an iPad. I still can't do my proper work on it. Now we're getting the power and that battery life that you're used to on an iPad inside a machine that I actually do my work on. But just in terms of the, the power of this machine, this laptop, at, at, in its entirety compared to other things in the market, does it, how does it compare to things that exist in, say, you know, uh, a, a PC? Yeah, yeah, no, good question. I, okay, so, so I, I've been using DaVinci Pro as my kind of uh, benchmark, which is a video editing software that's available on both Mac and PC. And I was seeing, for instance, uh, I, I did a 10-minute little video. It was terrible, but it was just for <laughs> testing purposes. And I exported it on uh, the new M1 Mac Mini, which is the cheapest M1 machine that you can buy. Uh, and it exported, again, like three times faster than the a, a very expensive high-end 16-inch uh, laptop uh, running the same software. So... Um, and yeah, the, the the laptop I was comparing it to, well, I won't name the brand, but it was uh, just under $3,000 versus the uh, $900 mini that I was testing. So the chips that uh, Apple have been using till recently have been made by a company called Intel. What does this mean mm. for the relationship between Intel and Apple? Yeah, I think they're off the Christmas card list. Um, they're still going to be producing, um, like, well, they're still going to be supporting Intel laptops for two years, they've said, um, but potentially they're obviously going to be using less of those. I was interested to see that um, that Intel's share price didn't drop terribly on this announcement, um, I guess because they, you know, everyone knew it was coming. However, I don't think that they're going to be the best of buddies, given that this is definitely, um, they're phasing out Intel chips, essentially, um, and potentially printing some more money for the Apple factory. So why, Peter, did Apple drop Intel and, and move internal? What was motivating that decision? Well, again, I, I think it's been something that Apple... It, it is such a perfectly Apple thing to do. They, they now <laughs> own 
every part of the machine. They own um, all of the internals, all of the software, and a lot of the apps that run on top of it. And that, 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 is, that is their happy place. That's where they like to be. And, you know, again, they did this, this exact same thing back in 2005 when uh, IBM at the time weren't making chips that, that they felt were fast enough and power efficient enough for their laptops. And so to great, you know, um, amazement, uh, Steve Jobs got up on stage and said, we're going Intel, we, we can't do this anymore. And so, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see Apple do this again. Uh, this is definitely in their DNA. This is the kind of company that they are. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just think that they, they feel that when they were seeing their performance in, say, an iPhone that is tiny and fits in your pocket was outperforming Intel chips. Uh, that's when they realised that they started to, to make the move. Jane, if you were another technology vendor to Apple, so you made, you're a, you're a company that makes, you know, a crucial part of an iPhone or an iPad, would you be looking at the events unfolding here with like great trepidation that, you know, one day Apple will just be like, thank you very much, we'll move internal now. Are there other companies that are looking at this like warily? Definitely. And, and sort of the more Apple brings in-house, the more concerned all of those different uh, sort of component makers become. However, I would point out that um, Apple Macs aren't a huge share, don't have a huge share of the market in Australia when it comes to computers. So there's still... I think from the figures I saw last from various vendors, they're around like 9%. Um, so there are still a lot of computers out there that don't use the whole, you know, Apple hardware. Um, but potentially this is going to encourage a few more people to make the switch. Um, however, I would point out that some people are waiting for other people to break it, like Peter, for example. <laughs> they they, they want to see like exactly what software will work on all of these these devices smoothly because there is that transition between um, mm. an Intel program and an M1 program or optimised for, for M1 um, and some people are waiting to see just how many uh, things will, will sort of make the switch. So I, I've been testing like Adobe Lightroom, for example, which is supposed to be one of the first Adobe programs that's due to make the switch and at the moment it hasn't. It still runs well but it could run better and so I think people mm. will still press pause before completely committing all of their cash. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I would say, again, un unfortunately, if you are in the Pro Tools side of things uh, when it comes to audio editing, then maybe hold off a bit. Audio audio apps tend to be the, the very slowest uh, software vendors out there to upgrade to new hardware and new machines. So they're, they're the kind of areas and, and any kind of really intensive uh, research like NVivo, things like that. I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that software anymore. <laughs> but any any of those kind of, uh, that kind of software out there, I would probably hold off. And that's why, you know, Apple is still selling Intel variants of, of these Macs. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Peter Wells from the podcast, uh, The Help Desk, and he's a technology expert in his own right. And Jennifer Dudley Nicholson, the technology editor for News Limited. Mark Fennell is my name and $1.2 billion that is the amount that will reportedly be shared over uh, 400,000 people involved in the robo-debt scandal that has embroiled the government. And I thought this, uh, well, firstly, we should unpack a little bit about that decision and how it came about, but also it might be worth going back and, and taking us back to the beginning. Well, I think when the problems um, first started to take hold was when uh, the coalition government decided to remove human oversight. 
it's like they have never seen a Terminator film and they were like, yeah, sure, let's trust the robots. That'll be fine. I can't see any problems <laughs> happening with this. Um, so essentially uh, RoboDebt, as we know it, is is a computer matching scheme. So it, it was matching uh, the, the amount that people received according to the ATO for the year, an annualised salary, um, and comparing that to what they received from Centrelink and what they'd reported to Centrelink. But that didn't quite work out. Um, some of those didn't match and it, it didn't necessarily prove that uh, people owed money, just that casuals sometimes earn more one week and less the next week. And so sometimes they qualify for welfare and sometimes they don't. And so there are a lot of people who got um, debts, who got debt notices saying, you know, you owe this much to the government when they actually didn't. And there was, these were automated. There was no human oversight because that was the policy that was put in place. And it caused a lot of people real harm. Mm. And of course, it, you know, fell in large part to kind of online activists. I know there was uh, people like Asher Wolf, who's quite active on Twitter, started talking about it quite early. Eventually, journalists and then lawyers got involved, Peter. I mean, at risk of asking a really basic question, how did they get the technology so wrong? We'll talk about the impacts in a sec, but, but how did they get the technology part of it so wrong, Peter? Uh, just amazing that they did get it so wrong. Uh, basically, they were doing what any business graduate would be failed for. They were taking averages, like Jen said, they were taking averages over um, a year and, and, and extrapolating that that's how much you should have been paid overall. And, and that just doesn't work when you're talking about casual work. And that's exactly what people on welfare tend to have is these, you know, the fluctuations in, in pay throughout the week and or, or throughout a quarter. And so, yeah, so it was it was just a the most basic maths problem that wasn't uh, included in, in the software to begin with. So of that 1.2 million reported number, I mean, how, how much of that is actually going to make it to the people involved? That's a great question. Um, so as I understand it, there's been not quite 700 million that's actually been refunded to people. Um, and then there's going to be compensation paid, I think, in the, the realm of 112 million in terms of just compensation for you know making people pay back debts that they didn't owe in many cases. Um, the political compensation, I don't know when we're going to see any of that because this, the people running it are still uh, haven't, haven't seemed to be punished. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And there, apparently there's like 15,000 people also who haven't actually been um, identified and haven't, haven't been able, they haven't been able to, to receive um, any refunds for the debts um, that were identified. So that's a real concern. Do you think this is going to change the way governments approach folding technology into government services? Most governments will be very wary of, of anything that is automated like this again. But we're still seeing government try to move so much of standard kind of reporting and everything else online because they do understand that that, is, uh, that saves them money in the long run, that uh, if you can get Centrelink uh, recipients to log onto a website and declare their income there, then that is one less person going into an, you know, a physical environment and speaking to a real-life human. Uh, it's just... They need to make sure that this stuff is fully tested and that variables like this just can't... This, this is insane. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I really think this is one of the biggest stories of the year and uh, I, I will actually uh, recommend people listen to a, a Signal episode um, about the robo-debt that was fantastic. It was a couple of years ago now, but it really, really broke down uh, just exactly what went wrong. Yeah, uh, you can find The Signal if you haven't already heard. The Signal's a daily news podcast hosted by Stephen Smarley and Angela Lavoie-Pierre and you can find it on the ABC 
Sea Listen app. For you, Jen, what do you what do you think this is going to change about the way governments interact with technology for services moving forward? I'm a little bit cynical um, when it comes to how <laughs> it's one our of the government many things we uses like technology. <laughs> oh, good, good. Uh, when it comes to the way our government uses technology, because we now have a really long string of failures. So uh, just putting aside the NBN, which some people claim mm. is excellent, um, we've also seen the census fail. There was a bit of drama around um, e-health records and people being signed up to them. Um, they had to, to opt out, otherwise they were going to get um, one of these electronic health records that at least at the start wasn't a great the greatest look. Now they're pushing into things like digital identity and Again, with that cynicism, it's really kicked into high gear when, uh, you know, Stuart Roberts stands up and says that, you know, your, your voice is your passport. You can log into Centrelink in this way, give us your biometric data. I'm not sure I'm there with that trust yet. Um, certainly, this is this is a way to, um, you know, connect a lot of people up and get them access to services. But I do like a bit of human oversight. And I, I do really appreciate when everything goes wrong and Centrelink mucks up your payments and, and potentially you can't log into the system or you don't know what a CRN number is, that you can actually go in to uh, to see a human, to actually go into a store. We're not quite ready to get rid of those things yet. A big part of me feels like I want all the convenience that comes with more digitised services, but that trust and the reliability and the human recourse is, is I think, as a taxpaying citizen, it looms very large. I think you have to be really certain about the program you're rolling out before you roll it out. You can't test this on people. Um, And obviously there were going to be issues in this case in terms of annualising income, even if they'd run sort of a small test pilot, I think that could have been identified. And you're talking about... uh, (sighs) You're talking about people who don't have a lot of money to spend. And so clawing back thousands of dollars from people who did actually qualify for welfare and and were sort of, you know, not rich with, um, you know, accounts in the Cayman Islands in the first place, I think that made the case for even more testing than as usual. And so I would love to see more consultation done. I would love to see more testing of these these things done and certainly talk to people in the industry. So, for example, when we saw um, the coronavirus app, um, the COVID Safe app brought out in Australia, we had lots of people who were willing to give their time and give their expertise maybe the Australian government needs to be listening to some of those people and really be testing these things before they're rolled out en masse. And for you, Peter, what do you reckon the lessons are that the, the government should learn from this disaster that is uh, the robo-debt scandal? Oh, everything Jen just said was amazing. I mean, I, I was testing the uh, COVID Safe app when it first uh, appeared on GitHub and immediately I could see the flaws in, in that app. And uh, you know, it's so frustrating, just like Jen said, that we, we have a, a group of people really wanting to help out here and, and they seem to be ignored. What I would love to see, and I would I think it would be a really great thought experiment, if there was a RoboDebt 2, and stay with me here, um, a RoboDebt 2... <laughs> Very dangerous that, that territory, went, but yes. I know, that went for Bunnings and 7-Eleven and Woolworths and Qantas and Grilled and all the other people who have not paid their workers enough over the last couple of years and sting them with a debt and see what that happens and see see what the reaction is to attacking businesses who aren't paying their workers rather than people who are on welfare and struggling week to week. It does speak to the inequality with which this technology was applied, right? Download the show is what you're listening to, your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell with you. The voices you're hearing are Peter Wells and... And Jennifer Dudley Nicholson. And uh, the pandemic has messed with a lot of people, undoubtedly, but one of those organisations it has had an unusual impact on is Airbnb. Uh, you might be familiar with Airbnb. It's a service where you can book 
houses and apartments. Uh, it's taken a huge chunk out of the hotel business. But they made their initial public offering in the US this week, basically launching on the stock market in America. And it seemed the impact on it was a little bit unexpected because they had to reveal their finances, Jen. Yeah, that's always an awkward time. Nobody wants to reveal their finances this year. Um, and, and certainly no one involved in the travel industry. I think if you're a travel company, this is probably not your year. And, and that's putting it mildly. Um, and so they did have to reveal that, whoops, we somehow lost $700 million over the past nine, nine months. That's not a great way to go and, and have an initial public offering on the New York Stock Exchange. Why did they choose now, Peter, to launch, given it is, as you as Jen said, the worst time for any travel-related business? <laughs> Well, I mean, they they did see revenue drop year over year of 32%, which uh, is what you would expect in the middle of a pandemic. But uh, their their costs actually went down at, the, at about the same rate. So I think this is them being a little bit cocky and saying, look, we, yeah, of course, we, we felt the brunt of the pandemic like everyone else. But unlike, you know, hotel chains that continue to rent out businesses and rent out spaces and things like that, all our all our uh, costs actually went down, so we we weathered this storm better than most. And you know, when we saw that uh, when the vaccine announcements were made last week, that all of the the cruise ships. I mean, you wouldn't get me on a cruise ship; <laughs> you couldn't pay me enough. <laughs> no. But um, you you saw like stocks for cruise ships and hotels and things like that suddenly go up because people started to see light at the end of the tunnel. And so maybe this is actually a very clever time for them to come out and say, look, you know, look, we're, we're almost at the end here, people, just trust us. But I'll bet they also, I mean, a big part of what you get out of an initial public offering is people buying your stock and therefore a huge injection of cash. It, could it not mm. speak to potentially to the fact that they might have just needed a big injection of cash, Jen? Yeah, look, I, again, with the cynicism, um, but yeah, the, apparently they want to raise $3 billion and look, I same. mean, who doesn't, to be fair? Sure. <laughs> and they, they did actually get another emergency cash injection earlier this year when everything started to fall apart, including the world. Um, so <laughs> I, I do think that at least maybe a large part of this is due to just wanting more cash to make sure that the business can continue. And I don't think Airbnb are in a position where they'll completely disappear, but certainly there's a second wave happening, not necessarily just in Adelaide, but in America, where a lot of Airbnb's business happens. And so I think that we haven't necessarily seen the worst of it in some countries. Um, and I think while they say, oh, but people are still traveling locally, their, their business is still going to be down and you can't do hotel quarantine in an Airbnb. Um, I'm, I'm sure, Jen, you've seen, you've gotten the same emails that I have over the last year where, you know, anytime you stay in a US hotel, you have to sign up to their newsletter to, to um, get the Wi-Fi. And so I've just all year long, as, as the pandemic has raged through the US, I keep getting these like, it's fine to travel again. Don't, <laughs> just don't worry about it. And it's like, same. No, I'm getting those on? as well. And I'm realising I need to unsubscribe <laughs> from a lot of things. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Um, I think Airbnb is, to, to its credit, they're doing some really interesting stuff at the moment. Um, you know, we, we've really, uh, sorry, they've just announced that they've, they've kicked off 1.4 million users from their, from their uh, service because they were, refused to sign a, a no bigotry policy that the, the company had put in place. And, and I think things like that is what they can do to stay relevant, stay in the headlines and, and just kind of also, you know, tend to their house because they they have had issues over the years of, of really bad behaviour on both the hosts and guest side of things. And so why not use this time of, of forced kind of 
lockdown forced uh, forced drop in revenue to re- to really clean house and, and figure out where the company needs to be. We'll see a lot more people travelling locally this year and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And so I think there's still a future for the company. However, it's not the future that we thought in 2019. All right. That is all we've got time for on the show this week. Hey, Peter Wells, thanks so much for joining us back on Download the Show. Oh, thank you, Mark. If you enjoy Peter Wells, you can check out his podcast, The Help Desk, and also his podcast, Meta, which is a podcast about podcasts. Hence the name. Uh, Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson from News Corp is lovely to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. And lastly here on the show, an announcement. Um, For the past nine years on Download the Show, we've been looking at the present through the prism of the future because that's how I like to think of this show. It's not really about technology. It's about making sense of the world we have today based on technology, what's changing. As of next week here at RN, we're going to be doing something new that does literally the opposite. It's a brand new show that looks at the present through the past. And I'm going to play you a little taste. And it starts with me being somewhere I really shouldn't be. Dear visitors, starting in two minutes' time, there will be a free... All right. All right. <clears throat> I am recording this on my phone in a museum. Oh, God, security, look at me. My name is Mark Fennell, and I'm from Australia. Also, I'm from India and Singapore and Ireland. Actually, I'm from a lot of places. Places where Britain kind of... Dull stuff. It's shameless. It's so blatant. And for the last year, I've been on a very strange mission. What happened here 250 years ago? So I realised this is a quagmire. That is an insult. Well, just get over it. People just burst out laughing. Whoa, you know, like, yeah, that was a, that was a good time. Time. You see, sitting in museums and galleries like this across the UK are certain objects. Objects that were taken in the days of the British Empire. I've been tracking down exactly how it is they ended up here. And let me tell you... He was in desperate trouble. It is wild. Dramatic and very bloody. You look them in the eyes and it's tears. You are weak. There's no way to stop it. The tigers roaring, the man screaming. We had police escorts, we had cars in front of us. Thousands of people are murdered. It was really bizarre. The savagery. We were left here to die. There are conquerors and victims. And those stories are going to take you on a smuggling operation to Nigeria. They were stolen, they were looted. You don't think that's enough? You go ahead and you pillage. There was hand-to-hand fighting in the streets. Into a war in India. I mean, if somebody literally dug your father's grave up, once a king is vanquished and his entire family has to suffer. To China? This is your fate. Things to do when you're an emperor and you're bored and you've already conquered Tibet a couple of times. Because there is a mystery, they actually belong to all of us. You'll get tattoos in New Zealand. You feel different, there's no doubt about it. And all the way back to Australia. Just surrounded in flames. He would often fire a gun and deal with the consequences. You know, I was just being shot. Shot, shot, shot. To the British people listening, please don't feel personally attacked by this. Thank you for the railways and the legal system and the smallpox and the greatest karaoke song of all time, Wonderwall. We're cool, but there is this whole other side to history. This was one of the great crimes of the 19th century. People are fainting in horror at the sight of it. You could see the... The depth of of hatred. You see, these objects may be old, but they tell us about today. And I think it was that that evening when I actually opened up that letter and it was just, can you please help us? It appeared to be an injustice. From laws to borders to wars. 
Here, your highness, we're so happy to have gone to war to protect your good name as the world's largest narco baron. I mean, come on. <laughs> and all of it has shaped who we all are today. Knowing where you come from gives you confidence as to what you do and who you are as a person. We're here 250 years later still. The simple truth is that the impact of the British Empire, the, the colonialism, it was messy. It's the marker of a time in history. And that's what I'm going to try and make sense of. How we ended up with our world told through a shield, a mask, a spear. Just some stuff that the British stole. And that is indeed what the new series is called. That's right. It's called Stuff the British Stole. And as of right now, he checks his watch. Uh, you can subscribe to it on any of the major podcasting apps, uh, Apple Podcasts, ABC Listen, Pocket Casts, and also Spotify as well, just like download this show. Um, it is available right now, and the first episode will drop on the weekend. With that, I shall leave you. I'll be back next week with more of the latest media, technology, and culture right here on Download This Show. My name's Mark Fennell, and thank you so much for listening. 